North Carolina is the poster child for allowing multiple forms of voting over a long period of time. And we had record turnout with no problems. This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we're taking a look at what's happening in North Carolina politics with U.S. Representative Deborah Ross. For the News and Observer and North Carolina Insider, I'm Brian Murphy, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. I'm pleased to be joined today by U.S. Representative Deborah Ross, a Democrat who represents much of Wake County. She's in her first term in the U.S. House. Representative Ross, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Uh, thanks, thanks for being here. I, um, let me start with this. Your, your first week in office was the same week as the January 6th Capitol riot. Um, first, can, can you sort of describe what you saw that day? And, and second, and maybe more importantly at this point, how has that event kind of colored your first months in office? You, you, you had to vote to impeach uh, or you voted to impeach President Trump for his role in it. But has it changed other aspects of serving in Congress and, and changed maybe what's important to you? Well, um, I spoke with you that day, so right. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I do. I was pretty much confined to my office. You know, we, um, we were operating under COVID rules, so we were told not to come to the floor unless it was time to vote or unless we were speaking about a, uh, certifying a particular state. So um, I got to my office early as instructed and got my first COVID shot that day. Um, and then when when I was in my office, we were told that we were on lockdown. And so we got away from the windows and locked all the doors. I was there with um, my scheduler um, who barely knew me. And we just basically stayed in the office. Good thing Congress people have a bathroom in their office um, and a refrigerator. Um, and we stayed there and answered a lot of calls. I did a lot of press calls. I got a lot of um, calls from concerned people. I could hear some things on the outside, but they encouraged us not to have the TV on with, um, with it going, you know, because they were afraid people might be storming the buildings. So I got a lot of my information from the people who were contacting me. Uh, the best part of that day was around eight o'clock when we heard that we were coming back to certify those electors, um, that Mike Pence and uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi were going to do their constitutional duty. They were gonna get us back and we were gonna vote. Um, and that gave me a lot of comfort. It wasn't until afterwards that I really realized everything that happened, you know, because I wasn't watching TV. So seeing the clips later, you know, that was terrifying, of course. Um, the way it colored the how I've been um, serving is that I got appointed very shortly thereafter to the Rules Committee. And um, no other committee was organized at that point. No other committee had... Republican members appointed. So I was called by the chair of the rules committee the day I was appointed. And he told me, you got to be in Washington tomorrow morning. We're going to vote on the article of impeachment. So my very first committee meeting was on the article of impeachment for the president. Um, and I was the last person to speak. And my very first floor speech was about impeachment. And um, I would say the way it colored my views, um, I've, I've said this a number of times, um, after that event, 
um, I shifted from saying it's an honor to serve to saying it's an honor and a duty. Um, and that duty is to preserve and protect our republic and the constitution of the United States. And of course, I took that seriously when I was sworn in. But, um, you know, our founders pre pledged their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honor. And um, that has become um, even more uh, poignant and relevant to how we serve. The, the You've tackled a lot of issues since, since you've been in Congress. Voting rights is one of them. Do, do you put that, uh, two-part question, sort of ha, have those issues changed because of anything that happened or were these the issues you thought you'd concentrate on? And then voting rights in particular seems to be of particular interest to you. Is that even more important after the events of January 6th? Voting rights were crucial before and they are even more important now because they're more under assault. Um, both by state legislatures around the country in response to the record turnout that the record turnout and surprisingly um, smooth elections around the country that elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And then um, just, you know, recently we had the Supreme Court um, deal a blow to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So we know that Section 5 pretty much went away. And Section 2 is the, the part of the Voting Rights Act where you can sue for your rights rather than having the government take a look at these laws in advance. And Section 2 was essentially gutted by the Supreme Court. And so now, in addition to Section 5, we've got Section 2, and then we've got, you know, reforms to our voting system. These issues are not uh, foreign to me. I was a chair of the Election Laws Committee in North Carolina. Um, I myself have litigated voting rights cases and redistricting cases. And so, um, I feel like I am perfectly suited to this moment, and I'm the vice chair of the Constitutional Law and Civil Rights Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, which has um, already had two hearings on these issues, one of which I chaired, is about to have another hearing on Friday, and then we are going to take up the evidence that my colleague G.K. Butterfield has collected from around the country of what we need um, to rewrite the voting rights laws. And so we are up to the task and it's a, a monumental task, but it is essential. It is essential to people's right to vote and it is essential to our democracy. The, the, the US House has already passed um, the For the People Act. It does not appear to go anywhere in the Senate. It's been filibustered um, by, by the Republicans. There's also the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, which is uh, deals with some of the same issues, but it's a little bit of a scaled down bill. What what is your sense uh, that this Congress will it be able to pass any any kind of voting rights legislation? Well, the House certainly will. Um, the Senate will then have to consider its rules. So what is sad is that passing the Voting Rights Act used to be a bipartisan endeavor. It it got through with Democratic votes and Republican votes. Now voting and allowing people to have free and fair elections and have their voice heard has become partisan, which is really a blight on the past administration. In North Carolina, we used every different kind of way of voting and had the longest voting period in the country with no 
problems. And by the way, President Trump won. Many Democratic statewide judges lost. And Republicans won in most of the contested Council of State seats. And President Trump has even said that the system in North Carolina worked because he liked the outcome. But if the system in North Carolina worked, where we had the longest voting period with every different kind of voting, then that means we should allow people to have many different convenient options for voting and that it's possible to do it securely. North Carolina is the poster child for allowing multiple forms of voting over a long period of time. And North Carolina had record turnout in the 2020. And we had record turnout with no problems. The, um, but let's talk about some of the issues that the other issues that have come up. Um, documented sure. dreamers, um, PFAS, uh, consolidating Fort Bragg into one judicial district, which, which has been signed into law. I believe that's your first bill signed into law. Are these, are these issues you thought you'd be tackling when you got there or they come up through constituents? Yeah. I, I guess what I'm asking is how do members of Congress sort of choose their issues? Well, um, I've, I've been a legislator before, and what I've learned is that you always have a few things that you think you're going to work on, and then if you're truly a representative, um, you listen to the people. And so all of the bills that you mentioned, and in addition, um, wind energy, all four of these issues are issues that came to me from a combination of being in the community and um, having a record of working on environmental and clean energy issues and, ha- and being on the committees of jurisdiction. And by the way, they're all bipartisan. So we started out with a lot of partisan things, but they're all bipartisan. So I serve on the Energy Subcommittee of Science, Space and Technology. And um, I, with, along with um, Representative Rouser, we wrote a letter to the president um, encouraging offshore wind leases in North Carolina. One of those is imminent. Um, in Representative Rouser's district. Um, I'm also a co-sponsor of the bill to lift the wind moratorium for the entire country because of the work that we've done in North Carolina. For both PFAS PFAS and um, Fort Bragg, those are bipartisan issues that um, have affected North Carolina, and it's been hard to get some traction on those issues. And I was happy to work with my colleague, um, Representative Hudson, on both of those issues. Um, They both have a disproportionate impact on Cumberland County, obviously Fort Bragg, um, and I'm on the Committee of Jurisdiction that deals with that, which is the Judiciary Committee. So it was relatively easy to get a bipartisan bill through. Now, the Republicans played around with it a little bit and tried to break up the Ninth Circuit with a little amendment, but that didn't pass. And then we got our bipartisan bill through and the senators got theirs through and the president has signed that. Um, PFAS, we've been working on since um, I was in the legislature. And then the documented dreamers, it was one of the major issues that I heard 
from the Indian community um, as I was campaigning. And for those who don't know who what a documented dreamer is, first of all, we're all for all the dreamers. Um, but documented dreamers are um, the children of people who come here on work visas um, or education visas um, and who age out of our immigration system at the age of 21. And there's such a backlog that they then have to self-deport. So here are people who have lived in the United States, some of them since they were infants, um, are in college, um, have always had their documents, and then poof, they turn 21 and the line's too long and they're told they have to go back to a country they've never really lived in. And so we're adding the documented dreamers to the dreamers because we're for all dreamers, um, but the documented dreamers issue is particularly acute in the research triangle area because we've attracted so many highly skilled workers um, to work in tech and in medicine um, and to be at our wonderful colleges and universities. And these documented dreamers are so, so inspiring. Um, it's really been um, a pleasure to advocate for them. I've written in the past about this issue, which obviously affects Cary and Morrisville and a lot of Western Wake County. Um, I've written about the issue in the context of the spouses of these yes. of, of these workers who, in many cases, are highly educated themselves but are unable to work. And and almost all of this stems, or all of this stems from from the green card issue. Right. Um, that that these H one workers who've been in the country and sometimes twenty years, maybe longer, have been unable because of the backlog to get green cards and that's affecting their spouses, and it's also affecting now their dependent children. Um, is there a solution to, to, the, to the bigger problem, which is the green card problem? Yes. Well, we could fix our broken immigration system. Um, and the House has passed two bills to do that. One, the American Dream Act, which deals with dreamers, documented dreamers and people with temporary protected status, like people from Haiti, for example. Um, and then the other one is deals with farm workers. And both of those bills, which of course I voted for and got some bipartisan support, um, are tremendously important to the economy of North Carolina, because we're so reliant on um, folks who come and work in high tech sectors. And then of course our agriculture industry is dependent on um, immigrant labor. And so hopefully the Senate will take up both of those bills, but in the meantime, I'm not gonna stop advocating for my constituents. You mentioned uh, the highly, uh, our, 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 our universities in the system and, and you're a graduate of North Carolina uh, Chapel Hill Law School. Full disclaimer, I'm a graduate of North Carolina for my undergraduate degree. Um, I wanted to ask you about what's happening with the university and the university system. Uh, certainly, as someone who grew up in North Carolina, I always felt that the, the UNC system was seen as sort of the crown jewel of the state for the state. Um, you know, with the Nicole Hannah-Jones situation, currently um, we're, we're taping this on Wednesday, but uh, the chancellor is, is under fire and, and maybe removed. The board of trustees uh, has some new members on it as well. Uh, what, what do you think of the political pressure that's being placed on the school and, and what what can be done, what should be done? Obviously not really a federal issue, but mm -hmm. you're someone who spent a lot of time well, in the state. Yeah, I think it's tragic. Um, I think that the, the method of appointing 
um, members of, of the UNC board um, has been highly politicized, and that's trickled down to the universities. Um, when I was in the North Carolina General Assembly, uh, we, we tried very hard to have excellent representation from around the state, people concerned about education. Um, we had Democrats and Republicans on the board, even when the Democrats were fully in control. As a matter of fact, one of the Republicans um, was from Wake County and I supported that Republican when he was on the board. And so there was an idea of balancing things out for the good of the state and for the good of the university. But that is not how the current General Assembly deals with the appointments. And that is not the spirit um, of all of the people who are appointed. And what has turned into a political plum has become a political crisis. And we do not have that public spirit. And it has been a problem um, with the UNC board. As a matter of fact, in a bipartisan way, last weekend, I get my News and Observer print edition. <laughs> we appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> with the former chairs of the board, Democrat and Republican, saying this is a mess that has to be fixed. And they are completely right. Um, one of the people who uh, signed that was um, former Senator Richard Stevens, a Republican, who um, has raised these issues as well as, um, you know, Democrats and other Republicans who have chaired the board. We have got to get this fixed because the future of the state, the future of education and our reputation are at risk. And um, we cannot expect the best and the brightest to come to North Carolina and to stay here as long as our um, board of trustees operates in the manner that they're operating in. Do, what, what, what would be the first fix? What would it go back to being a different way to appoint members to the, the board of trustees? The first fix and would be appointing them in a different way and rewarding people not just for um, political loyalty, but for their dedication to the state and their dedication to education. And, you know, we, I saw that when I was in the General Assembly, um, you know, we had plenty of business people on the board, we had, but we had much more diversity and much more political diversity. And when you get that, it's the same thing. Just this week, we had um, a hearing on the diversity of the federal bench. You need to have people in decision-making and policy positions who reflect the diversity of the constituency that they're dealing with. And when you don't have that, you have an echo chamber and poor decisions are made. And that is what we're seeing over and over and over again. I am just grateful that NC State has had such wonderful, consistent leadership throughout all of this. I just really want to commend Chancellor Woodson for how he's navigated these rough waters. I also want to commend um, the Dean of the Law School, Martin Brinkley, who came into a very difficult situation and has been able to navigate the waters and rise the law school, my alma mater, <laughs> um, up in the standings. But it, it it takes, it should not take that much energy to counteract what's going on in Chapel Hill. 
you, you raised the issue of diversity, and, and so I'm going to pivot to the U.S. Senate. You were the nominee for U.S. Senate in 2016, and unfortunately uh, for you, uh, lost to Senator Richard Burr. And Demo- for the state of North Carolina. <laughs> um, Democrats have lost four straight U.S. Senate races and six of seven. Um, uh, as an aside, there are no women, black women in the United States Senate now that Kamala Harris is the vice president, and I believe um, – only three African-Americans in the entire United States Senate, um, three men. Um, so since you've been in that fight uh, previously, what will it take for Democrats to win a Senate seat in North Carolina? And there are at least, there are several uh, black women running for the Democratic nomination. It, will it take uh, an African-American woman to win it? Or, or can a white man win that seat um, for Democrats? I think that, What it will take is the people of North Carolina going out and voting, voting their hearts out and voting their values. Um, I think uh, an African-American woman would be a great statement from North Carolina. I I wish Harvey Gantt had been the first African-American senator from North Carolina. Um, But I think what Democrats have to do when they run statewide, and we have seen this, is make it clear to everybody in North Carolina that they are listening, that their voices will be heard, and that they will be respected. And North Carolina is a very diverse, very purple state. And so making making sure that people know who you are and trust you throughout the state is no easy feat. And the thing that is particularly hard about a U.S. Senate race is how much outside money comes into it. So you can be the greatest candidate in the world, but you have no control over the message. And, um, you know, the Citizens United decision really opened up the floodgates even more for all of these people to pour all of this money in to distort the issues that are so, so important to people in North Carolina. Expanding Medicaid, making sure we have outstanding public education, reducing the price of prescription drugs. But everybody on both sides gets portrayed as an evil person. And that makes it confusing and hard for the voters. It's the intention of the outside groups. But I am hoping that after the last two elections, um, that the people of North Carolina have wised up to this game and um, they will pick the best person. And of course, I hope that person will be a Democrat. I think there are some great candidates out there and they're, um, they've hit the ground running. It does not sound like you've you've chosen your candidate in that race. Well, I have to worry about myself now, Brian, because <laughs> um, redistricting is coming up. And so um, I'm going to pay attention to what happens with my district. I'm very concerned about redistricting. Um, I want to make sure that that's a fair process. I've been through it um, three rounds, um, including, you know, two when I was in the North Carolina General Assembly, actually more than two because they had to do it a couple times. And so um, I, I, I intend on going back to Congress. And so I'm going to pay attention to that redistricting before I worry about anybody else. Um, to your point, the 2014 race and the 2020 race were both the most expensive Senate races in U.S. history when they occurred. Uh, the two Georgia runoffs have, have passed the 
the 2020 race, but it, and it it's a- all outside money right. and it's dark money. I mean, in my race, I didn't realize that the tobacco companies were paying for some of the ads about crime um, until after, well after, um, and the News and Observer, of course, reported on this because they didn't have to report it. And um, there's something wrong with that. We've got to fix it. Actually, there are things in HR1 that will help with that. Um, But that, I think, is the problem. And um, breaking through that is a Herculean task. And I'm thrilled that we have so many um, qualified people who are up to that task. You mentioned, um, you know, the cases you brought against redistricting and, and voting rights. You were the state director of the, the ACLU for, for the better part of a decade in North Carolina. How, how does that experience sort of inform, you're dealing with a lot of civil, civil liberties issues in Congress. Um, I, I think it's been great preparation. And um, the other thing that's been great preparation is that I've been an attorney in the, these areas. So, you know, when you're um, dealing with a court and you're dealing with the facts, a lot of things that happen in politics are hy- hyperbole, um, you know, the end of the world or this or that. And I think it, it helps me particularly because we're going to have to craft a voting rights law, um, you know, an amendment to the Voting Rights Act that will pass scrutiny in the Supreme Court. And so I think it's clear that I have the record of advocating for um, for justice and advocating for voting rights, but I also have a lawyer's eye for how to craft things to with withstand judicial scrutiny, um, to have the consequences that we're looking for. And so um, I just really feel like I'm in the right place to make a difference on this very, very crucial issue at this very, very crucial time. Does it inform other issues like uh, immigration, uh, police reform? I mean, there, there seem to be no a lot question. of issues that no blend kind of politics. So I've worked on racial profiling issues um, and very proud of getting bipartisan um, legislation that helped with DNA innocence, with, um, of course, working with the News and Observer on racial profiling issues, on juvenile justice issues. So none of these issues is new to me. Um, but we, I feel like I have a broader stage, a national stage where I can have an impact, not just for North Carolina, but for the entire country. And, um, and I'm gratified to have so many uh, very, very capable colleagues to work with. And I'm hopeful that we will be able to get some of this done um, with the help of the other side of the aisle. I've always, the work that I did on DNA innocence and on racial profiling and on juvenile justice here in North Carolina was all bipartisan. And so I don't know if Washington's going to be able to, you know, bridge that divide. Um, But I'm going to make the same arguments I made here that got that bipartisan support and did the right thing for our people. Let let me end uh, with this. Uh, You you mentioned how difficult it is to get stuff done in Washington. We've we've seen particularly in the Senate with the the filibuster and and stuff kind of getting jammed up there. Uh, there's some massive infrastructure packages that are. We're going to get that through. <laughs> Infrastructure's coming. What, what's your sense of what what gets done and and maybe what doesn't get done in the rest of the year? Well, again, um, if you can have both sides of the aisle agree, things can get done quickly. Like our Fort Bragg bill. I mean, 
six months, that's pretty good um, to solve a problem that has been um, around for a long time. Um, I think, obviously, in the Senate, if you can get um, 10 Republican senators to agree with doing something, um, that's that's gold. Um, but, you know, let me tell you the fastest thing that happened, and that was Juneteenth. We didn't we weren't even prepared for the Senate to unanimously make Juneteenth a national holiday. And it just happened in the blink of an eye after decades of trying to get this to happen and people not thinking it would ever be possible. So um, I'm going to hold that up as my hope springs eternal, um, that if we can get that done in the blink of an eye, um, we can get a lot more done. That things go very slowly in Congress until they go extremely fast. That's what I've learned uh, yes. from covering it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and, uh, and good luck with, um, with, with the rest of your term and, and your reelection bid. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com/newsletters. Thanks for listening.